Hey y'all, Deva here, the rebellious recruiter. This is part two to my conversation with Daniel Stanton. We're covering military recruiting and strategic objectives around recruiting. So if you missed part one, you might want to get a little bit of context. Go back and listen to that one first and then grab another cup of coffee, sit back and listen in. Can we talk about military recruiting? Absolutely. That's one of my most favorite things to do. Go for it. Companies have this um, desire, right, Mm -hmm. which is well-meaning that they want to recruit veterans. They want to recruit folks out of the military. Honestly, I think part of that is driven by the fact that they just want to recruit because they're desperate to find people, right? right? And, and, that's and they're a, like, well, he was making minimum wage and working 60-hour, <laughs> 70-hour weeks, and we're not as hot as Afghanistan, so he'll right. be happy How, here, how right? bad can it be? Nobody. <laughs> we can almost guarantee nobody will be shooting at you. Um, but but one of the, the challenges that, that I... I underestimate because you, mm-hmm. you you come from a, a military family. Mm-hmm. I I come from a military family, and I spent some time in the Navy. For for me, it's just normal, mm-hmm. right? That like the kids that we grew up with, lots of that. I I'll, I'll, you know, it feels like almost everybody that we knew went off and, and joined one of the forces for a while. And so for like I say, for me, that's normal. What I realized working in a big company is it's the exception, right? I yep. mean, there there were a handful of folks who, you know, had an uncle or a kid, and 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 of course there were a handful of, of, of veterans in the group, but it was not normal. Right. And especially what I found was well, so a couple of things I discovered. One, um, because the company had not been intentional about military and veteran recruiting in the past Mm -hmm. there was a gap yeah and the the natural thing that happens if you're not intentional about it is people hop on the career ladder and they just keep going up and folks that go off in the military even for a couple of years and then come back to join the civilian workforce start at the bottom of the ladder right and so they can never catch up and right. in fact, because they're a couple of years older, there's almost this stigma of, hey, you know, if you're at that age, but you haven't gotten any further than that in your career, you're not really a high performer. And right. so it, it becomes sort of the self-reinforcing thing that can be corrected, mm-hmm. but it takes some intentionality. It takes leadership and sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a recognition that, you know, somebody that missed out on four years or 20 years right. of learning this business right. does need, we, we do need to make an investment right. in, in closing that gap in right. order for them to be, you know, competitive in, in a leadership role. There are, you know, back to the culture things, mm-hmm. there are th- some things that that um, are really fundamentally different, I think, about the way that, about the expectations that we put on leaders in the civilian mm-hmm. world than in the military. Um, and it, you know, I was quite a ways into my career before one of my mentors who was prior military pulled me aside and explained one of these to me, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, when you're in the in the military as a leader, it's pretty rare that you have the opportunity to hire and fire people, right? right? 
you don't get to choose who's going to be on your team. You get assigned people, right? You've got a certain number of roles and it's almost like magic. One day a new person shows up and the old person leaves and they do a handoff. Right. Right. And that that is all controlled out of some administrative office in the other in some other part of the world. The good news about that is it it makes everything run very much like a machine. Right. Mm -hmm. You don't really have to think about hiring and firing. Firing, by the way, as you know, I mean, when that happens in the military, it's because somebody really screwed up. Right. Because firing is is essentially a judicial process. Right. Right. So what what that means is when you are a a leader in the military, generally what happens is you you have a a mission. You've got um, a a set of objectives that you need to meet. Mm -hmm. You're given a team and you've got to figure out how to motivate that team and equip that team and empower that team to achieve your objective. Mm -hmm. That's it, right? You don't get to choose the team. You're given a team. You're given an objective. Your job as a leader is to match those up. And as long as you get that done, you've been successful. In the civilian world, it really seems more like the job of a leader is to try to figure out what needs to be done Mm -hmm. and then just hire and fire people to make that happen. Yeah. The, and the other thing that I run into chronically in the civilian world, and this happened recently, is people automatically make an assumption that because they were in the military, they were trained in leadership and they were in charge of people. And I had a situation uh, with the manager and found out he was ex-army. And I said, oh, how many years? He said four years. I said, corporal. He said, specialist. And bells started going off in my head because he was never put in charge of people, right? Right. But I have an entire team of executives that completely made that assumption. (laughs) And um, I'm like, okay. So I'm sitting there with him. I'm like, okay, we're breaking this down for you right now. I said, you have been promoted to master sergeant. You are in charge of all these tactical (laughs) operations, right? And like, I, I, I think I came back in and I'm like something like I'm, I'm your captain that's been assigned to the motor pool, but you're the one that's really keeping everybody in check. Cause I don't know what's going on yet. Right. This guy over here, he's the full bird Colonel right now. He's where the butt stops. <laughs> and like, when I started breaking the whole thing down, like you can see his brain, like clicking into motion. Right. <laughs> so it, it was just really funny. Cause I remember my boss, he was like, you know, my dad was in the military, but I've never heard it broken down like that. But I'm like, okay. My dad's a retired military officer. Uh, my boyfriend is in the Navy. My sister's fiance was in the Marines. My brother-in-law was in the Army. My uncle was in the Navy. My great uncle was in the Navy. You know, I, I literally, I have 20 members of my family that served in the military. It's so exactly what you talked about. Like for me, this is all second nature, right? I would totally know to ask these questions or how to train someone to bridge the gap on some of these competencies. Absolutely. And, you, you know, the other thing that, that you, you, you're touching on is for companies that want to do military recruiting, mm-hmm. one of the absolute best things that you can do is find a veteran in your group and have them help with the yep. recruiting. 
Yeah. Right. Because they can speak that language. They understand it. And there's the whole military fraternity. Right. We can pick on, like, on each other. One of the one of the pieces of advice I give, though, especially the military officers, like junior officers that are transitioning out, have the hardest time being placed. And I remember having a whole bunch of junior officers come through for a generalist position in HR that I was trying to recruit for. And the first one, like I had this entire executive team that was like, I don't get it. So the next two or three that I brought in, I said, I'm going to send you the job description, take the duties list and put it in a table format on the left side, have our duties on the right side, put your experience handling every single one of those duties from a military aspect. And suddenly they were like, oh, hey, like, it's silly that I had to make them justify their experience. But now that's like a piece of information I give veterans constantly because you might not have a hero in that organization that can do exactly what you're telling them to do, which is teach them how to read their resume. Right. Yeah, it's the English English translation. But so a great example, right? Where, I mean, if, if you have, and I've been in this situation, mm-hmm. an entire recruiting team and a panel of hiring managers who've never been in the military, mm-hmm. who are you know, maybe patriotic and want to do things to support veterans and and give a veteran candidate a a chance, literally don't understand the difference between being an officer or being enlisted, Mm -mm. right? Or, um, you know, the the one that was fun for me um, is I got a a phone call one time when I was in this recruiting role from somebody with with corporate HR um, saying, Hey, we're we're launching this military recruiting initiative, and we're trying to match candidates with our openings throughout the enterprise. Okay. And we've discovered that there are these things called MOSs, which translate into kind of job roles, right? Mm-hmm. We can kind of do that. Um, and of course, the inside joke is I was Navy. We don't have MOSs, but I know enough Air Force, Army, and Marines that I get what they are. I, right. I don't know what they are. I know that they exist. But but then the conversation was, so, okay, so we found the MOS for nurses, and we found, you know, and we can match that to the, the job roles, and we, we found the MOS for recruiters, and we can match that mm-hmm. to, you know, corporate. We're trying to figure out what MOS matches up with supply chain. Well, like half the army and navy, like right off. Right. The- <laughs> you you get it immediately, right? It's like <laughs> so I thought about it, and there was probably a, an awkward silence on the phone, and I'm like, well, kind of all of them. <laughs> yeah, look for the titles that say scheduler. That was supply chain. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> um, and. So the, the point being, there's there's this bridge that we've got to build. There's this English English translation. Uh, you know, of course, there's the issue that between the services, we have our own jargon, right? right. We have our own way of, of divvying up job duties and responsibilities. Um, within each of the, the, the branches, you've got officers and enlisted and, you know, that you've got to understand something about rank and responsibility and, and as well as job function, right? The responsibilities 
of you know a navy pilot are different than an army artillery officer or an yep. army infantry officer and not that any of that necessarily qualifies or disqualifies a candidate but if you as a recruiter and if you as an employer aren't willing to invest a little bit in understanding what that experience is and what it means then somebody that that has that sort of experience and has has had that sort of responsibility is frankly entitled to feel a bit disrespected mm-hmm. and choose to go to an organization where that's going to be valued yeah it's i know military hiring for me has been huge uh my father when he retired from the air force he retired just before the wall fell he retired in 1990 and uh, we stayed in south dakota that final year for me to graduate high school and okay. um so we uh we moved out here to Oregon during the height of that nasty recession in the early nineties and a military officer and the way the military, see, this is what people also don't understand about military resumes. Like my dad had two or three jobs in the military that technically weren't assigned to his specialty or his rank. So technically it never existed according to the military. Right. Um, so then having to figure out, you know, back on the typewritten resumes and, you know, he was a scheduler and a navigator and how that translated, he couldn't get a public sector job. Was he a B1 guy or B52 guy? Uh, he was actually a KC-135 and KC-135R. Yeah. Stationed at Ellsworth? Oh yeah. Yeah. All the all your um filling fighter jets and B-52s I didn't know that I thought they were down at Omaha. I didn't realize they were oh no oh yeah there is okay his entire career right uh EC 135s as well so yep. anyway um fun fact my dad actually planned the last mission in Vietnam it was his plane because he's a navigator that carried the radio equipment to send the news into Saigon to get out of there really and he was scared because the nature of that mission, they were not allowed because remember KC-135s have no military armament. That was the first time he had to go into a war zone without fighter cover. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So. That's crazy. That that is crazy. Now you take all this. Now let's fast forward. 1991. My dad could not get a job in this recession and he wound up going to a temp service working as a lumper on a truck. And then eventually he got assigned to a local food distribution service packing boxes. And they hired him. I think that minimum wage at the time had to be around like six, maybe $7 an hour tops here in Oregon, probably closer to six. And they hired him at like nine something an hour because he was so good at packing boxes. And it's like, you have to look at what it takes from a military perspective, right? Like, he showed up. Now, eventually he found a local school that trained people and got them into the airlines. And within like five years, he was scheduling planes again for, you know, a a national airline division. And then he went into flight maintenance auditing and they actually loaned him out to other airlines. Interesting. It was all his military experience. Well, but the other thing about that story, Deva, and it speaks so well for your dad, which doesn't surprise me, is, you know, to be able to 
kind of just take a step back and put your ego to the side and say, let me figure out what I can do. And it's not fair and it's not right. But um, but that military life is behind me and I need to start over. And so let me find a place to begin. And this is where, like, for me, I have a heart dealing with the military because I don't want people to have to take those steps back if they don't have to. Maybe half a step back to learn the organization, learn the civilian way of life, but to absolutely have to start at the bottom. That's it's not a fun place to be sometimes. No, absolutely agree. Um, and and I, I run into it a lot. I, I spend a lot of time talking with folks that are in that sort of position that it's, you know, when you're in the military, the other thing about it, you know, we talked about how as a leader in the military, you generally don't um, have much responsibility for hiring and firing, right? right? Um, Firing is a judicial process. Hiring is an administrative thing that that is handled by somebody else. Um, As uh, a member of the military, you generally don't have that much responsibility for um navigating your career your no because it's all assigned especially if you're enlisted more so than an officer it's assigned when you meet with the recruiter and your asvaps have to meet up with what the recruiter thinks you're qualified for right that's right i mean for your entry level stuff you sort of get to choose a career field and then once you're in that career field you know you're you pick a, an assignment and you go do that for three or four or five years. And then when you, you know, are, are getting close to the end of it, mm-hmm. you talk to somebody and they say, okay, I got three choices for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you, do you want to go here, here, or there? Yeah. Uh, or maybe I have one choice for you. Right. I, <laughs> um, and totally different. And, you know, if you've done that for 20 years, mm-hmm. Right. Even, frankly, even if you've done that for 10 years, just figuring out how to navigate mm-hmm. a, a career on the civilian side is such a totally different set of skills and thought right. process. Um, so um, it, it is, I think, important for folks that understand it and have, have made that journey or, or who've been a part of the journey as you have with your dad mm-hmm. um, to be empathetic, right? Yeah. And, and to figure out how to, how to explain that. Actually, I had that conversation a, a week or two ago uh, with a veteran um, in, in my region. They got out. Um, they decided where they want to live. They mm-hmm. bought a house. He's been looking for a job for three months and he can't find a job. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, we, we spent some time talking and he's like, what am I doing wrong? How come nobody's going to hire me? I'm like, well, I mean, I've got a list of openings with people that are looking for somebody like you, mm-hmm. but they're not within a 15 minute commute of your house. Right. Right. You know, and even the ones that I had that are closer to him are on the other side of town. And he's like, well, I don't want to have to drive that far. Fine, I'm not criticizing that at all, but you just need to understand then that, you know, in the same way that recruiters end up searching for a purple squirrel, right? right. Somebody with exactly these skills and experience in this location that's available today, right? You flip that around, right? Yeah. You are now the purple squirrel waiting for a recruiter to need you, <laughs> right? 
And that's, you know, that's one of the things I know for me personally, when I was looking at leaving Oregon a few years ago, the cities like that I was looking at because I'm a recruiter, I can't just move to small town America. Like I literally was like looking like every city in New Mexico that looked romantic to me was out because the largest employers there were industries that I wasn't familiar with or wasn't large enough to support somebody that could do what I could do. Right. And it's the same thing when you're getting out of the military, you know, I see a lot of transition experts, especially on LinkedIn, talk about don't pick the city, do the research, find out where your skills will be utilized, look at the cost of living, look at the average pay, then pick where you're going. So, And, and even better, you know, one of the things the military has gotten much better about is helping people with the transition. And right. so there, there are programs now that, you know, six months before your end of service date, you can start, you know, not only looking for a job, but they've, they've even got programs where you can basically intern with an employer mm-hmm. while you're still on active duty. Um, and so, you know, what the, the, the folks that, that I see that are doing it much better than what, what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, are, you know, getting really serious about the job search and the transition a year before they're into service. Yep. Now, that doesn't mean setting the expectation that somebody's going to give you a job offer 12 right. months before you're available, right? Because no. companies can't do that. You're, you know, you're, you're not going to make an offer to somebody that isn't going to be available for 12 months. Frankly, I think six months is pretty long. But what you can be doing 12 months out is building relationships, right? Emotional capital, yes. Exactly. Figuring out what are the companies that you want to work for? Right. What are the areas that you want to live in? How do you start plugging into those networks? Mm-hmm. So then, you know, you if you think about it like a funnel, right? Mm-hmm. You, you spend 12 months working your way through that funnel so that when it comes time for your end of service, you know, the, the ideal is... You've got a company that wants you, you know what the position is, what the location is. Right. You can pay for the military, have the military pay for you to relocate. So there is right. a relo cost for the company. Um, or if they offer, you know, some sort of a relo package, you just take it as a, a lump sum check and put it in the bank. You know, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things I used to work in a shipyard and uh, there was something called a NAVC certified dock master and NAVC is an acronym. I don't remember what it's for. It's a really hard designation to get. It's about 12 years of dock master work on government contracts to like get this certification. Right. I learned though, that while I was there, there was a thing in the Navy called, I think it's a technical engineer, which is a Naval dock master. And it was a way to kind of hopscotch that certification forward. And then I looked at one of the average ages of our guys and I'm like, looking like, oh, he's like two years away from retirement. So I started going through LinkedIn, looking for people that were two years away from retirement that were technical engineers. And I'm like, Hey, I saw you had four years of this, you know, a couple of years ago. Do you know that this skill set can be used? It's in high demand. And like, there were times like these people would come back and say, you know, that was my most enjoyable assignment of my career. And I never thought that I could use it when I got out. Wow. So it's that it's putting that bug in people's ears. So yeah, maybe they don't ever come to work for my company, 
but now at least, you know, 10 other shipyards benefited possibly just from me educating someone. Right. Taking the time to, to build that bridge. Right. Yeah. And, and helping people on both sides come across. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good for you. So let's talk about um, strategic workforce planning, but I also want you to bring in some alignment commonalities to supply chain. Absolutely. Okay. So, you know, that's the thing that um, was one of the the big epiphanies for me when I got, when I got pulled in from a supply chain role into my recruiting role. Right. Um, One of, one of the things that the company had been doing for quite a while was strategic workforce planning. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it ended up on my desk, right? It's this sort of once a year exercise that we would go through and send some sort of a report back up to, to the folks at corporate. And, um, when it, it was assigned to me, I found the um, the process for collecting, analyzing, and reporting the data to be less than satisfying. And and so, but I sat back and I said, so what are we actually trying to do here, right? What what is this strategic workforce planning SWP all about? And and the idea was we were trying to figure out where the company is today, you know, in terms of where do we have people, how many people, how do we segment those people based on skills, capabilities, seniority, and what do we think the company is going to look like in a year, two years, five years? And what I realized is, well, that's just a forecast, right? Right. That's all that is. And Actually, that whole idea of developing a strategic workforce plan is very much like what we do in the supply chain world with sales and operations planning, mm-hmm. right? Where you, where you have on the sales side, they set targets for you know what they're what they're trying to sell, right? right. Um, and then on the operations side, you have an understanding of what your capacity and your constraints are, and then you get the sales and the operations folks together and identify any places that there are conflicts and come up with a single plan. So the salespeople know what they need to sell and the operations people know what they need to make and ship. And they're not actually working on different things, which it it sounds absurd, but the truth is in many companies, that is the case. The salespeople are selling whatever they can sell. The operations people are making whatever they can make and they're really not aligned. They're silos, but when you break out of the silo, you get in trouble for not staying in your lane, right? That's right. It's like there's there's that whole thing again. So so what I did for our strategic workforce planning is I just looked at um, some of the you know the the basic process for doing sales and operations planning, mm-hmm. and adapted that to talent. So you know what is step one? Figure out what we have for people today, right? And that's mm-hmm. a spreadsheet, right? You just build a spreadsheet and say, okay, well, you know, how many people do we have? Where are they located? How do we segment them by, you know, um, seniority or, you know, engineers versus managers, whatever you can, you can segment people in the same way that we segment SKUs in a a supply chain, right? You just figure Mm -hmm. out what are the characteristics that you need to look at. Um, And then 
you know, there's a spreadsheet that says, well, what do we think the workforce should look like in a year, in two years, in three years? Um, and again, you do that by geography, by seniority, by, you know, whatever characteristics, uh, criteria are relevant for your planning. Right. The one other thing that, that you need to, to do is factor in retention, right? Or turnover, right? So, you know, in, in general, you say, okay, you know, here's where we're at today. Here's where we want to be tomorrow. There's probably some factor of growth, right? If the company is, is doing well. And there's probably some loss, what we in the supply chain side call shrinkage because of turnover. And so that makes it pretty obvious to see what the delta is. How many people right. do we need to hire between mm -hmm. now and that time in order to close that gap? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, our recruiting targets just become math, right? Right. And, and it totally transformed the relationship between our recruiting team and our HR department and our business partners on the mm -hmm. operation side. Because we could just go to them and say, hey, we ran a report and here's what your team looks like today. Does that look right to you? Mm -hmm. Validate it? Okay. And then you have put together a business plan that you had to submit to the organization. Um, now, your business plan was focused on revenue and expenses. But I bet that on the expenses side, your, your labor estimate is based on a headcount estimate. <laughs> Right. So it, it didn't show up in there, but tell me, right, how did you come up with that labor estimate? And, you know, that's a picture of what they expect their future workforce to look like. So you say, okay, well, here's what you look like today. And here's what the business plan says you're going to look like in a year or mm -hmm. five years. And and I can tell from the the HR system what the corporate turnover rate is. Mm -hmm. I can tell what your department's turnover rate is. Do you believe those numbers? Do you want to put in a different number for turnover? By right. the way, if you tell me turnover is zero, I'm going to look you square in the eye and say, like, <laughs> wh wh when did you have your first manager job? Right? Right. And all of a sudden now, we are truly having a conversation about talent as a, a component of what you have to manage. Right. And you see me as a key supplier to your success. So if you're at 100 people today and you want to be at 115 people next year mm -hmm. and you've got a 5% turnover, you right. need me to be finding 20 people for you in order to hit right. your business plan targets. Right. right? And that for, for me, that was transformational, right? Mm -hmm. Because it turned it into a real business conversation. You've defined for me what your current state is, what your future state is. We've identified what that gap or that delta right, is. Right. Now, when I come to you and I say, I, you know, here, here's my plan for filling that gap. Um, first of all, I have to come back to you with a realistic plan, right? right. Of how long it's going to take, right. what I need to do, what I need for a team to be able to do that. Right. What I need for a budget to be able to do that. Right. What I need you to do right. to help me identify interview candidates, um, approve requisitions, right? Right. 
And for me, adopting though that SNOP process for our strategic workforce planning was the um, kind of the linchpin or the keystone mm-hmm. to making recruiting truly a business partner with the operations team. And I'm sure your recruiters were 10 times happier when they got involved in the middle of that because they had, they could say, oh, I've dealt with this before and this is what happened. We have this contingency to work with. Right. Absolutely. Now, let me tell you a, a couple of other things that came from that. One of the most interesting, so one of the areas that um, we we looked at in, in the environment when we were segmenting the workforce. Right. Obviously, we looked at geography. Mm-hmm. We looked at seniority. Mm-hmm. Um, we built in um, the ability to uh, for uh, flexible workforce, contract mm-hmm. labor right. a, as an option. So, you know, part of the thing is you, you say, oh, well, we've got a gap, right? Right, I, right. We know we need to hire 25 people. But the next question is, okay, so how are you going to fill those roles, right? Right. Is it going to be um, a, a, a college uh, uh, hire, right? For somebody fresh out of college. Is it going to be a mid-career hire? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be a, a flexible workforce contract position? Is it going to be a consultant, mm-hmm. right? In, in some cases, that's the, the right way to do it. Uh, or is it going to be an internal hire, right? Are you going to pull somebody from some other part of the organization? Um, all of those are legitimate, right? But, but then those decisions from the, the business leader drive the recruiting strategy, right? right? because you can start aggregating that together. One of the unexpected things that came from going through that process Mm -hmm. with all of our teams and all of our facilities is when we rolled it up, coming out of a recession, right? With everybody sort of scared that, you know, nobody wants to hire and then turn around and lay somebody off right away. So everybody was really sort of um, cautious about external hiring. When we rolled that up, to the division level, what we saw was we had a lot of growth, a lot of roles that we needed to fill. And all of our leaders thought they were going to fill them with internal hires, with transfers from one department to another. So (laughs) that is an awesome exercise in communication, because at the end of the day, if you need 20 people and you're going to do 20 transfers, you still need 20 people. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And what we realized was there was no way to see that at the level of the individual leaders. It was only when you rolled it up to the division level that you realize, oh, my goodness, everybody has this mental model. Everybody has a plan that won't work. Right. And I can totally see I can totally see in their mind's eyes, I don't have time to train them. So I want to promote them, which is awesome. I love that 10 times more than I don't have time to train them. So I just need to hire someone who's going to hit the ground running, which is one of my biggest pet peeves, right? That and saying people need to be a quick learner, another pet peeve of mine. Um, But uh, yeah, that's suddenly, yeah, now you've got a recruiting plan that you have to do because they're going to, but was, was it in time? There was no scramble. 
Well, so so at what was great about the strategic workforce planning process and why so one one of my um pet peeves is calling everything strategic because not everything that we do is strategic. Yeah. Um in this case, the strategic workforce planning, I think, proved to be truly strategic because when we rolled it up to that level and we were able to show the vice president, listen, all of your leaders mm-hmm. are planning on internal transfers, but your division needs to grow. We don't have a working plan. Right. He then sent the message back down to everybody saying, you need to redo your plan, right? Thank mm-hmm. you for going through the process. Right. We need you to do it again. And everybody needs to plan on at least 10% external hires. Okay. Right. And so now you've got the, the, the direction to say, okay, now let, let's redo this and, and we can iterate on it and come up with a plan that truly works strategically for the organization and isn't just, you know, have everybody swapping seats constantly mm-hmm. without us actually growing in a sustainable way, investing and in bringing in fresh blood to keep the organization going. How many employees were with that organization worldwide? Uh, on the order of 10,000. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can see where some of that, those divisions aren't talking to each other, but they're like, oh, San Diego only lost, you know, 20% of their people. But here in Indianapolis, we lost 40%. So we'll just take five people from San Diego who want like more family friendly living environment. I mean, I can totally see like these types of decisions going through people's heads um, and some of the craziest decision-making on how they, they justify how they're going to do the internal transfers. Right. Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> so, um, so that's my pitch about strategic workforce planning and that's SNOP awesome. and supporting your argument, which is um, actually HR and recruiting in particular are just managing a supply chain of people. Yep. And and so um if if we can adapt some of our supply chain thought processes and tools, it can make life much better for mm-hmm. the folks on the recruiting side of the house. Yep. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. So good connecting with you again. Thank you, my friend. Be well. Right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rebellious Recruiter. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening to this and comment, rate, and review. And share this podcast with other leaders that are looking to build out-of-this-world teams and maybe have a penchant for defying best practices. Go ahead and check me out at millsgroupllc.com and drop me a line there with your thoughts or questions. I might use your subject matter in upcoming shows. And thank you for listening. I know you only have so many hours in the week and I'm grateful to spend this time with you. Until then, make it a great day. I'll see you on the flip side. This podcast is produced by TH3 Entertainment.